to be back. Also, just because you're you, uh, we really missed our church. So thank you for letting us go, and thank you for having us back. Um, we're going to be in Matthew 21, 1 through 11 today as we continue our journey through Matthew and stay on Christian calendar at the same time. Um, stand with me, please, with Matthew 21, 1 through 11. I want us to stand and read this passage together. <clears throat> thank you. Matthew 21, 1 through 11, then sent two disciples telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their clothes on them. He sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And then the crowds who went ahead of him, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is have you ever presumed to have a commanding knowledge of something only to then have an experience that exposed just how little you actually knew? So I spent a significant portion of my free time in high school at First Baptist Church of Cleveland, Mississippi. I was at Wednesday night supper at 5 o'clock, and then I was at school, and I was there until 12, 15, depending on who was preaching, all the way through, through church. Um, and most surprising to many of you, I actually spent more time in church, not in discipleship, but in the music ministry. I was in youth ensemble, which was that smaller, you know, youth choir for super choir kids. Um, so I was from 5 to 5.45, and then I would have snack supper from 5.45 to 6-ish um, that Miss Patsy Reese usually made for us, and then we'd go upstairs into the youth group from 6 to 7, and then from 7 to 8, I was in evening worship service singing, and usually the youth choir or the youth ensemble or myself as a solo was all because of the ministry of First Baptist Church of Cleveland, so much so that I was so into worship so into what, what, what Weston just breathes every day, okay? I was so into that that the summer of my senior year, I went on a mission trip with my youth group to Gatlinburg, and every night we performed our musical, our choral musical with drama, and you know how that was, maybe. Some of you will remember that kind of thing. And I, our minister of music threw his back out two weeks before the trip, so I conducted and ran the whole thing, if you can imagine, Weston. Okay. And I came back to church and publicly proclaimed my commitment to the ministry of the gospel that I just assumed would be through music. I was going to be a worship pastor because I was the bee's knees of church music until I got to Furman University where I auditioned for private personal voice lessons and got put into a remedial small group. 150 people can drown out my badness. No, they put me in university chorus, which is the wannabes who, who you know, like me. I signed up for the first semester of music theory 
Mr. Music in Cleveland, Mississippi, and I got a C, and I fought for it with all of my Mississippi education heart. I fought for it, okay, and I got a, a C. It only took me a few weeks to unravel a few years, okay? I thought I had this intimate knowledge of music, but in reality, I was only familiar with music. Have you ever had or thought you had a pretty commanding of understanding of something only to discover that you really didn't? This would not be the last time that I would have that, that perception that I had an intimate knowledge of something only to find out that really I was just familiar. You know, like I knew enough to be dangerous, right? During the pandemic, I went from a publishing team, managing a publishing team, to managing a digital publishing team, and then managing a video streaming team. And during that time, video streaming actually became really important. I don't know if you remember or not, but when the pandemic happened, we all became obsessed with Netflix or whatever else. And everything had to be online, including this church. And there was a crisis, and the Lord just kind of positioned me to be in this place. Like, I'm kind of wired for leading through crisis. Even though I didn't know anything about video streaming, I suddenly found myself in charge of this team that had to solve all these crises and have all these live events. And it went pretty well, well enough for my new chief technical officer to put a job description in front of me that would have me leading and planning the development of our company's most important website, if you can imagine, John Keller. Just reading the description terrified me and exposed how little I actually knew anything about what I was doing. My familiarity had not just misled me, it had misled her into thinking that I had competency. You have familiarity, you have mastery. And it's this dynamic, familiarity and intimacy, that stood out to me as I studied, ironically, this very familiar passage the Matthew 21 today. Because for everybody in the story, it's not Jesus. There's a wide variety of familiarity of what God may be up to. But there's, but there's no actual intimacy. There's no actual mastery of what God is actually up to. But the good news is, is that if you have eyes to see and you have ears to hear, you can very quickly move from familiarity to intimacy and be joined with who God is and what he's doing. So let's, let's look at the text today. There's familiarity all over this passage in several categories, and I want to highlight them. I want to highlight three of them. There are three really primary categories where familiarity is the theme. It's running through. And the first is that the people are... There is a fervor, and there is an excitement, and there is a sense of anticipation that these people had. And, and, and this was not new just because Jesus was now there. This sense of anticipation and excitement about a Messiah was, uh, had been present for quite some time. Okay, There was an already present fervor in both Highly religious circles and political circles and just Nazareth kind of Galilee circles out in the, in the fields, out in the farms, out in the, out in the villages. That there was just this sense of expectation that God was going to do something with and in and through and send a Messiah. And in particular, it was the Pharisees. They had this very intense hope during Jesus' time that God would soon send this, this leader, this, 
this deliverer to reinstate Israel among the nations. Okay? Not just them, but certainly them. And so for hundreds of years, really since the Maccabean period, which I'll come to in a little bit here, the Jews have a strong sense of anticipation for a messianic deliverer. Okay? So here comes Jesus into, into Jerusalem, and they are cheering, and they're laying down their, their, their clothes, they're laying down you know, their, their, their branches, and they're paving a royal road for Jesus into the city. And part of what's driving it is that it's just they're familiar with the spirit of the times, okay? They're looking for it. They're hoping for it. They had this familiarity for it, and so they, they participate in it because they're driven by their familiarity with the times. But they're also driven by their familiarity with tradition in the Bible. They know just enough to be dangerous. In the inner testament, so let's have a brief, it's, it's not brief enough, okay, but it is brief. Let's have a brief history lesson in Judaism, okay? Period of time that we refer to as the intertestamental period. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's called the intertestamental period. And during that segment of three, 400 years, there something took place that would define Jewish people in terms of their identity until Jesus comes, okay? So in the second century B.C., 200 years before the common era, okay, in, the, in that time, there, the Jewish temple was desecrated by a Seleucid king, the Seleucid Empire. His name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Okay, there you go. You're, aren't you excited about this? This is really important to understanding your Bible, though. Hold, hold with me. Okay. So he's leader of the Seleucid Empire, and he desecrates the Jewish temple where God resides. So in response, there was a Jewish man named Mattathias, and he was committed to the ancient covenant of Israel, and he was determined to rescue the temple and the nation from the Seleucids. And so he started a guerrilla warfare, passed on the leadership of his insurrection uh, to his son named Judas. Judas Maccabeus. Rolls right off the tongue, okay? You know, his nickname was the Hammer. Much easier to remember, right? The Hammer. And he became a national hero, okay? He was, he, he was, he was Robin Hood, okay? And he wreaked all kinds of havoc on the Seleucids, okay? And he put enough pressure on them that by a, within 30 years, around 160 or so B.C., they said, okay, you can have the temple, you can have the temple, okay? And they released the temple to the Jews so they could actually practice their faith. And this was met with a whole lot of celebration, and that uh, is called Hanukkah, okay? That's what Hanukkah is. It is the celebration, the Feast of Lights, the dedication, the Feast of Dedication. So that's, that's what Hanukkah is all about, and it's, and it's history. But keep going. Judas's brother, Simon Maccabeus, would drive the Seleucids completely out of Jerusalem altogether militarily, okay? And when that happened, he really became a national hero, and there was this huge parade, and the Jews celebrated the victory, and they had music, and they waved palm branches for the first time in celebration, in this context, for the first time in this context, in celebration of a militaristic political victory. 
And so from that point on, the palm branch became significant as a sign of military victory, of political triumph. and became so deeply rooted in the Jewish consciousness that later, after Jesus in the 60s AD, when the, Rome, when the Jews would revolt against the Romans, they would mint their own coins. You know what they put on the coin? These branches right here. Okay. So the reason as Jesus walks into Jerusalem, the reason they've got these palm branches that they're waving and they're putting them on the royal road on his road into as the next Maccabeus, the next political king like Judas or Simon 200 years prior. They're driven by their familiarity with tradition. And they're also driven by their familiarity with Scripture. Look what they're shouting. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Kevin said this. He preached my sermon before I could get to it. Hosanna, it means save now, right? So this plea, save now, and then found in Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, which is called the Hallel, Hallelujah, is where that you see the connection there. And they would sing this every morning during the Feast of Tabernacles. And right here in our text, they're singing uh, Psalm 118, verses 24, 25, 26. But let me read to you the whole last half of Psalm 118, starting with verse 19. Listen to the context. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Every Jewish pilgrim was familiar with the words of the Hallel just like all of you would be familiar with the Star-Spangled Banner or familiar with John 3. So when the crowds came out to see Jesus, out of a place of familiarity, out of a place of tradition, out of a place like, yeah, I've read some of the Bible, they shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are not doing this as gospel-centered theologians. They are doing this as, I know a little something about the Bible. We're supposed to say this, and they say it. Okay. So their familiarity with tradition and the Bible led them to look at Jesus coming into Jerusalem and say, blessed is he who's coming in the name of the Lord. Save us, King of Israel, and all of this clearly communicates that they were looking for Jesus to be their salvation in a military or political sense. So they are familiar with tradition. They are familiar with their Bible. They are familiar with the signs of the times. But most shockingly, 
they are familiar with Jesus. Notice that there are both crowds behind Jesus and crowds in front of Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem, which is specifically called out by Matthew. So the crowds behind Jesus are pilgrims, just like Jesus in this respect. And they're coming from all the outlying villages where Jesus had been doing ministry for the last two or three years. And they too are headed to Jerusalem for Passover out of tradition. And upon seeing Jesus come into Jerusalem with the context of his teaching, they think about his teaching, they recall his miracles and his ministry and that they are familiar with either in personal experience or through the storytelling. And with that familiarity, that just amps up the enthusiasm for Jesus and his, and his potential messianic leadership. I mean, do y'all remember? We're actually here where it's going to happen. The coronation is going to take place a little later. And we saw him on the road and they are singing Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And there's a crowd in front of Jesus. These are the people who were waiting for the tourists to get there. They live local in and around Jerusalem. And they were there, or at least heard about Lazarus. And they too shared in this enthusiasm for Jesus as his potential messianic leader. And it's in their familiarity with his teaching and his works, both in Galilee and near Jerusalem, the people cried out to Jesus to be what? to be a political, military leader. You know what's terrifying to me? <laughs> I start thinking about this passage and where we are today as Christians in the West. We are very quick to use our familiarity with tradition and familiarity with the Bible and familiarity with which way the wind is blowing in our culture and look for a military, political leader to fix it all. And we will use the Bible, and we will use tradition, and we will use our read on the Twitter, <laughs> and we will do anything we can to justify. Our familiarity is the most dangerous thing we possess. But for anybody who has eyes to see and ears to hear, you can get beyond the nonsense of familiarity and get to intimacy and actually know Jesus in the gospel. And it was right there present for anybody that was willing to see it. Look at the text. They brought for seven the donkey Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He did not come on a white horse mounted as a king or political ruler, Zechariah 9. He will come on a white horse, Revelation 18, or is it 19? Somebody will correct me later. He's, that's coming, but right now, Jesus is coming in on a... He's, he's coming um, in 
Well, actually, it says in the text. What does it say in verse 5? Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming. How? Gentle. Gentle. He has familiarity. He is going to fulfill expectations driven by intimacy. Jesus actually knows what's up from the Bible. Jesus actually knows what God is up to. He is there to fulfill that plan. And for anybody who had eyes to see and ears to hear, they could look at Jesus coming in on a donkey and go, wait a minute, some of this is not lining up. Some of this is not lining up. When we are familiar with Jesus, we will make much of him to the extent that he is consistent with our traditions and our expectations. Familiarity with him, we will abandon him because we think he's abandoned us. But in reality, it's our familiarity, it's our lack of intimacy that's what's caused the rift. So Palm Sunday pushes us out of familiarity and toward intimacy and into intimacy. This is really, really important because it's actually, it's what discipleship is. It is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be consistently growing in amazement at the gospel. It is not some intimacy with Jesus. It is not something, it doesn't start with the gospel and move to something else. It is just constant, ever-growing, centrifugal growth of amazement in Jesus. That's intimacy. And that will keep you away from using him or leaving him because he doesn't meet your expectations that are associated with tradition or your take on the Bible or the signs of the times. Let us push in to an intimate understanding of the gospel. Let us enter into an amazement of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus who gave his life to start this kingdom, manifested itself in Murfreesboro 2,000 years later as Blackman Baptist Church. Let's pray together. Father, we can know enough to be dangerous. We can come across thinking we, we have a firm grasp and an intimate grasp or a masterful grasp of things and yet really just be, just be, just know enough to be dangerous. So help us not stay complacent or stack. We are 99 years old. May we continue to discover new aspects of that diamond, new facets of that gospel diamond and revel in them. May, may our love for you and our love for the truth of the gospel just consistently so we're never resting in the fact that we think we got it, in our hubris, in our pride, or in our laziness, which is really just another form of pride. May we never just get to that place where we're like, I got it, I got it, I got it. I'm familiar enough. Well, that's a very dangerous place to be because familiar people did not want you to die on the cross. They wanted you to be president. 
we didn't need a president. We needed a savior. Help us press in and treasure that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.